Dorothy Beal, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hey, happy to be here. So you are a unique guest in some ways. To this point, I've had all elite athletes and former elite athletes on to talk about their careers, their training, what they've got coming up, um, gleaning all kinds of insight from them. And you, no disrespect intended, are not an elite athlete. And I think that's a great thing because I think you've got a great story to tell. And I think you're doing some wonderful things in the running space. But a lot of my listeners probably have no idea who you are. So in your own words, who is Dorothy Beal? Um, gosh, well, I guess I would say I'm definitely not an elite athlete at all. Um, I would say running is my profession, though. I am a mom of three. I've run 34 marathons um, and kind of fell in love with running after my first marathon in 2003. And when I say fall in love with running, um, I mean, kind of like the entire sport, everything that it encompasses. So, um, you know, from apparel and shoes to um, what goes on behind the scenes um, in terms of races, uh, market all that kind of jazz. I kind of love um, everything about it. So, And how I first came, I don't want to say in contact with you, but became aware of you was a few years ago through your blog, Mileposts. And I've had a couple now defunct blogs over the years and sort of played in that running blogosphere for a while. And yours was one of the first ones that I was introduced to. And it's pretty popular. Um, I know blogs in general have lost, you know, some of their, some of their oomph these days and aren't quite what they used to be. But when did you start your blog and why? Uh, I started it in 2009. And honestly, I, when I started it, I kind of, I wanted to write, but I didn't want to do what I felt like all my friends were doing, which was to talk about their kids. So I thought I had this great idea that I would talk about running online and then realize that a lot of other people were talking about running online. Um, so I had also recently become a stay at home mom um, or work at home mom and uh, had wanted to kind of stay um, relevant in the running community and kind of keep up with some of my contacts. Prior to starting my blog, I had worked for um, Brooks Running and then also Moving Comfort. Um, and where I live in the U.S. is is not really the greatest place to find um, jobs in the running industry. And back then, there weren't a whole lot of jobs that um, you could do virtually. So, uh, yeah, so I started a blog. <laughs> Let's rewind a little bit to your days at Brooks and Moving Comfort. What did you do for those companies? and at the time, were you, you know, were you looking to stay in the running industry or what was attractive to it um, for you in the first place? Yeah, well, when I first started running, I didn't start running until I was in college and I kind of started it as a way to um, lose weight, um, both physical and kind of mental, but I wasn't, I didn't really love it a whole lot. So in an effort, um, my mom tried to, uh, get me to kind of just embrace the whole community. She asked if I wanted to come work with her at the running store she worked at. So I worked at a small um, local specialty running store where I ended up meeting um, a lot of like the tech reps and um, sales reps for running shoe companies. 
And so that's kind of how I got in contact with Brooks. And then when I graduated from college, applied for the tech rep job, um, I had little to no experience. So I ended up getting um, the assistant um, to the person who ended up getting the position and was his assistant for a while until he got promoted to a job um, working with the lead athletes um, at Brooks. And then I, I um, got the job. So I was a tech rep. So I went to um, local specialty run shops and did clinics on the technology and the shoes and then attended major marathons working those expos and stuff like that, um, working local running, um, like fun runs, those kinds of things. Um, and then my job actually got moved. Um, and they offered me the same position in Chicago and turned down that position because I'm not a fan of cold weather. So, um, I looked for other jobs, but ended up finding out that Moving Comfort at the time was in uh, Chantilly, Virginia, which was just around the corner from me. So I applied and got a job in sales and worked in sales for a while. Uh, that was not my favorite job. Um, I didn't love doing sales, but it actually led to one of my favorite jobs or favorite positions I've ever had, which was um, the product line manager of Run Fitness at Moving Comfort. So I worked closely beneath the two women that started the company. Um, and for those people who don't know what Moving Comfort is, because it's kind of not around anymore. Um, it was the original um, women's only women specific running apparel company. Okay. And then I think Brooks eventually acquired yeah, them so and rolled I, them up in this full circle like, world that we live in. <laughs> yeah. It was very strange. So then I got, so yeah. So then moving comfort got rolled up into Brooks. And so my position moved to Seattle and I had just had my first child. So I wasn't, um, in the position to relocate to Seattle. So that's kind of when uh, I started thinking about um, staying home and being a mom at home. So now when you launched Mileposts, as you just said, your original intention or your main intention was to stay in contact with the people that you'd met in the running industry through your work at yeah. Brooks and Moving Comfort. And it's safe to say it's grown far beyond that in recent years, when did you start to notice that it was picking up traffic outside of people that you knew or outside of people in the running industry, um, you know, aside from those who you had originally meant to stay in contact with? Yeah, I think it was probably, um, I started it in 2009. So it was probably 2011 um, is when I started realizing that it was the type of thing that you could actually start to make money off of, which really just kind of changed my whole perspective on it. Uh, my dad's an entrepreneur, so I've always um, kind of had that mind of like figuring out ways to make money. And I had prior to starting my blog, um, attempted to start other small little businesses. Um, one was like an embellished children's clothing apparel businesses. And then I, um, for a period of time, like sold stuff on eBay. So I think as soon as I realized that it was something that could be turned into a business, I started to, um, kind of market it in a way. And so I guess at the same time, um, I would say that it's kind of just luck that blogs were picking up. So it was kind of a combination of blogs becoming popular. So it picked up steam, but then also realizing that I could kind of like market myself in order to earn an income from home. And what do you think it was and is about your content that 
resonates with readers who would visit it regularly? Oh gosh, that's hard. I mean, um, I guess just that I'm a normal person and that I, I think I'm an example, um, kind of speaking to what you said before that I'm not an elite athlete at all, but that, you know, you can still love this sport and be just as dedicated, um, and kind of like a run running nerd as, um, you know, an elite athlete, like it, it might sound silly to some, and, you know, maybe it sounds offensive to some people that are elites. But like, when I, when I think about someone like, um, you know, Molly Huddle or Shalane Flanagan, like, I don't think that they are any more in love with the sport of running than I am. They just come at it from a very different, um, angle than I do. And I don't think that, um, one is necessarily better than the other. I think that the sport of running needs all types of people. Um, so I guess, I don't know, just sharing kind of like my, my perspective, which is definitely, um, more of an average perspective. And, and I think that there are more average people in this world than there are, um, super fast people. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so in your experience as a runner and someone who has been playing in the blogging space for a few years, do you feel like the, you know, the running community, which is a pretty amorphous term exists in silos? Yeah, I think there are kind of like these barriers between the kind of different areas within the running community. And I would love to see in the future kind of like those little barriers break down and we become more of like a cohesive um, unit as a, as a group of runners. But um, I think there's a little bit of intimidation when it comes to the running community. Like, you know, it's hard for people that have been running or who are just getting into it um, often to consider themselves runners. And, and I know like I I've been doing this for a long time. I've been blogging since 2009. I've been running marathons since 2003 and I still can kind of feel at times um, feel intimidated, you know, even coming onto this podcast and, and thinking ahead of time, what I was going to say or what we were going to talk about, it was like, well, you know, I don't know if the the people that are listening to his podcast are going to be interested in what I have to say about running. So, um, yeah, I hope that social media has kind of started to break down some of these little little pockets, if you will, I guess, you know, um, where we can get a glimpse into, um, the various different lives of each other, whether that's, you know, elites looking more at the level of those who just do it for fun or those who are just doing it for, for fun and health, um, looking at the elites and seeing that they, that they are an important part of this community. Um, in many ways they are, are ambassadors to what the what the rest of the world who doesn't run thinks of runners. So, yeah, I think that's a great point, and it's one of my biggest motivations behind the Morning Shakeout, both the newsletter and the podcast, is sort of bridge that gap because I've certainly spent a lot of time on the elite side of the sport and interviewed everyone and been to races and competed at that level myself. But having worked in specialty running shops, having coached runners of all different ability levels. One thing I've noticed through the years is that 
there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. And I think on both ends of the spectrum, runners fail to realize that. And I think it's important. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, um, you know, on the podcast is to, you know, is to show that in, in some ways. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, I think what you're doing through your work, through your blog and through social media, which we'll talk about here, you know, in a bit is you're having a positive impact on, you know, runners just in, in general, um, who, you know, who see a little bit of themselves in, in your story. And I think if more runners can do that, whether they're, you know, elite average or just getting started, we can realize that we have more in common than we don't. So I think that's a, I think that's a great answer. Um, sort of building, you know, building off of that and, you know, staying on the theme of your blog, has it been surprising to you? the impact that your writing and your work has had on other runners and just the response that you've gotten from people who have read your work over the years? Uh, yeah, I think it is kind of sur surprising and flattering. I think, um, I don't want to say if it's, I don't know what to say if it's human nature or, um, nature as uh, a female or, or I don't know what it is. I mean, it's hard for me at times to say like, Oh, I'm having this like great impact on people. Um, because it's just hard to toot your own horn. And I feel like in social media, like I have to do so much of that so often that when I sit down in my quiet moments, I'm kind of like, am I making a difference? I don't know. Um, but yeah, the response online, I mean, from what I can see overall is, is positive and, and great. And it feels wonderful. I mean, for me, if I, if I only help one person, you know, all of this is worth it. If I motivate one person to kind of think, Hey, I can do what she's doing. You know, I have a lot of people that are like, you know, a criticism that I often see online is, Oh, this girl's basic or this woman, you know, what she's doing, anybody can do. I'm like, you're right. I like, I am a basic person. I do not have some sort of like God given talent when it comes to running. I don't have more motivation than anybody else. Like I am an average person who decided to use the sport of running, um, to change my life in a positive way. And anyone can do that. You know, like it, everybody has, I mean, not everybody, but a, a lot of people, um, have the opportunity to change their life through running. Um, and it's just whether they take advantage of that opportunity or not. Speaking of opportunities, what opportunities has your blog and your work created for you that have been maybe beyond your wildest dreams or anything that you could have ever thought of years ago when you started Mileposts? Um, I mean, I feel like I've gotten to travel, um, certainly the entire U S but also the world. I went to, um, the great to China to run the great wall of China marathon. I've been to Kona to spectate, um, the Ironman world championships twice. I, I've gone to Hawaii another time to run a marathon with Saucony. Um, it, it would take me a long time to sit down and write out all the amazing things that, um, and all the doors that have been opened, um, because I, I started this blog, uh, it's kind of strange in a way, um, I guess, and cool that, um, we live in a time that literally, I mean, I created something online, um, from my kitchen is where it started. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, it's taken me to the top of the Great Wall of China. Which is, which is a pretty amazing thing to say and realize when you think about it. Um, last question on kind of your, your blog, and I probably should have let off with this, but what's behind the name Mileposts? Yeah, well, I just, um, I don't know. There's a trail that I live on. Um, it's called the WNOD. It's a rails to trail. So it used to be an old railroad that um, they paved over. And there's mile markers every 0.5 of a mile. Um, and when I first started running, I just had my like 10 split Nike watch there. I don't even know if GPS watches existed at the time or if they did. They certain were certainly weren't an affordable option for um, the majority of the population. So when I timed my runs or went distances, the mile markers were um, what kept me going or told me how far I was going. And they're just little wooden posts in the ground. And so um, I named it after that. Um, and I also went, had the forethought when I first created the blog that I wanted to be able to pivot if, um, you know, I decided to pursue a different career or if I wanted to keep writing, but I didn't necessarily want it to be about running. And I think that you can, there are a lot of mileposts in life that have absolutely nothing to do with running. So, um, and it just stuck. Had I, had I, uh, really understood how search engine optimization and all that kind of stuff worked. I probably would have included run or running in my URL. Um, but I'm happy that it's mileposts. When you started thinking about your blog as a business, what was that shift like for you? And did you spend a lot of your time thinking about things like search engine optimization and how to leverage social media and partner with brands? Or did a lot of that just start happening organically and you sort of learned as you go? How did it all develop? Uh, I think a lot of it started happening organically in the beginning. In 2012, I kind of saw, I guess, a little pop-up ad or something on a website to apply um, to be a part of the Women's Running Magazine cover model contest. And I figured, uh, well, hey, why not? Um, I mean, someone has to win. So I'll, I'll throw my name in the hat and threw my name in the hat and then ended up winning um, the contest that year and being on the cover of the November, December issue of the, that magazine in 2012. And from there, I think th I had uh, a lot broader, um, you know, I had a lot more exposure. So brands started approaching me um, after that. But beyond that, I, I spend a good portion of every single day thinking about marketing and um, what's what what is going to help my social media grow. Um, you kind of touched on this earlier that blogs aren't as big as they used to be, and um, so I'm very aware that there's an ever changing kind of like um, landscape when it comes to what you do. So in the beginning, the blog was my biggest focus, and I tried to blog multiple times a week. Now I maybe blog once a month on the actual Milepost website, but focus more heavily on Instagram and Twitter. Um, not so much even Facebook anymore, though. For a while, that that was a major focus. Um, I, you pretty much in social media have to constantly be on your toes and, and thinking about where you're going to pivot to next in terms of marketing and, and growing. 
Um, I'm sure you you run into this as well with your newsletter and such. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's uh, the tricky waters to to navigate, I would say, because there's so many places that you could be. And I think you've got to decide where it's best for you to be, where your tribe is and all of those things. So, yeah, I'm starting to deal with a little bit of that myself. So, yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard not to want to be everywhere too. I kind of liken it to running. Like I love the marathon distance, but training for marathons isn't exactly conducive to all my other running goals that I also want. And so it's like, okay, well, sometimes you have to pick where your, your main focus is going to be and just pour your energy into that. So I would say right now that Instagram is, is without a doubt, one of my, my largest focuses and, um, people are kind of like, well, what can you focus on in Instagram? And I'm like, I mean, I could, I could spend 12 hours a day on Instagram figuring out things. So, um, but yeah, that's my focus right now. Let's put a pin in that for a second beyond the mile posts website and, and that brand quote unquote, for lack of a better term. Um, I don't know exactly when you did this, but a few years ago you launched, I have a runner's body. Um, and I run this body. I don't know if those happened concurrently or which came first, but what was the impetus behind that? And would you consider that a pivot of sort or is it a natural extension of what you were already doing? Um, I think I run this body was a natural extension of what I was already doing. Um, I wanted to, um, kind of just empower others the way that I had felt empowered. And so that's where I run this body came from. I'm big into affirmations. So when I say I, like it's, I have a runner's body or I run this body, um, or, you know, whatever it is for the day, I'm big on, on using the affirmative I, um, I have a runner's body came much later, I guess probably about two years ago, but there was a period of time when I first started running that I admittedly just kind of got caught up in thinking that there were certain things that you had to do or, or a certain way that you had to look in order for people to take you seriously as a runner. And because I had come to the sport, um, later in life. And, you know, I wasn't one of those people that could say like, Oh, I I ran when I was little, or I did cross country and and track when I was in high school. I I was very self-conscious and wanting to fit in and wanting to belong. And, and one of the things or one of the ways that that kind of manifested was, um, once I had, had lost a significant amount of weight, then taking that down to the level of what I, viewed was a stereotypical runner's body. And that wasn't necessarily the healthiest place for me. I weighed 110 pounds and, you know, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm getting faster. I've taken my marathon time from a 420 to a 311. Like now I can call myself a runner. I look like a runner, but it, it wasn't really a happy space for me. And I don't think anybody took me any more seriously. Like I, I it, what I was searching for was the wrong thing, you know, like I needed, um, to take myself seriously and to realize that anybody that thought that I didn't kind of belong here in this space, um, their opinion didn't really much matter, you know? So as I started to gain some of the weight back and just kind of have a more healthy perspective on it, I I found more and more that, 
Um, you know, instead of people saying, oh, you look like a runner, when I, I would say that I ran marathons, it was like shocking to them, you know, oh, you don't look like a runner. I, I've gotten asked if I played ice hockey or like, you know, like people, people just would assume all these different things. And it was like, oh, I would never guess you were a runner. And I, I guess I just found it to be so hurtful because I am admittedly not somebody who's overweight. I, I'm not a giant person. I've had people meet me in real life and who followed me for years. And they're like, gosh, you're a lot smaller than I expected you to be. You know, so it's like if I am getting this as a normal, um, average female how are people feeling who are any larger than myself, you know? And so that kind of just was born out of like any person that runs has a runner's body. And, you know, right now body positivity stuff is really big. And I love that. But in the same sense, I think sometimes you can alienate um, people in trying to, to, to be body positive. One of the criticisms that I often hear in, in kind of my promotion of, I have a runner's body is, um, that I'm not overweight enough or that I don't promote people that are obese. And, And for me, like, that's not my purpose. My purpose is not to glorify or to help promote one single body type. My purpose is to say that, Shalane Flanagan has a runner's body because she runs, you know, Dorothy Beale has a runner's body because she runs somebody else who, you know, is taller than me or who weighs more than me. If they run, like they have a runner's body. And I think it's just one of those things that, you know, I want everyone to feel welcome in the running community. I think the world would be a better, happier place if everybody ran. And so I think the first step, um, in my eyes is to encourage people to kind of embrace who they are and to not fall into kind of the same traps that I fell into, um, of thinking that your worth as a runner is, is defined by either your times or, um, by how much you weigh. Now I know a good chunk of your audience is primarily female, but do you ever hear from men, um, specifically in regard to the, I have a runner's body movement or is it has it been all female or a mix of both i'm curious as to what that breakdown might look like well yeah it's definitely i definitely have a larger female audience i might say about um on instagram i would say it's about 80 percent female 20 percent men um yeah i actually was shocked by the response from men i oftentimes they say well you know it goes for guys as well. Like you, you don't, if you see a guy that weighs, you know, 200 pounds, you're not going to think that guy is a runner. You're automatically going to assume, Oh, well maybe that guy plays football or, or maybe that, that guy, you know, plays hockey or like whatever it may be, you know, so many people are in the business of judging body types and what sports or athletic endeavors we might participate in based on what we look like. And so I think, um, you know, worrying about your body and being self-conscious is not something that's just unique to females. You know, maybe females can often feel more pressure, but I think especially in the running community where so much of, um, there's so much emphasis placed on, um, times and times can you know, running times can very much correlate to, um, the size of a runner. I think for men as well, um, 
it's it's easy for them to kind of fall into that same um, way of thinking, you know? Yeah, no, I and I asked that for very selfish and personal reasons because I've been in that same boat myself. And this is years ago when I was first out of college and competing at an elite level. And I thought for a guy my size, if I really wanted to be an Olympic trials qualifier, that I needed to weigh 120 pounds. And I certainly tried to get there and um, and didn't go well, long story short. And I didn't have a good relationship with myself or a good perception of of my body because I had this idea of this is what an elite runner should look like. And I think in my case, well, I, I know in my case that it took um, a few years of injury and frustration um, to learn that there is not an ideal body type for runners. It's very specific to that individual and you should embrace that. And and you can, you know, just because you are built a certain way, it doesn't mean that you're relegated to running a certain time. Um, if that's your, if that's what you're concerned about, um, or it shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't diminish your enjoyment of the sport or your inclusiveness in a community or, or whatever it may be. So that was more of a, a kind of a curious personal question than anything else, because I think guys, um, more so than, than women are afraid to, maybe stand out and say, I, I do have a runner's body, whether I weigh 150 pounds or 170 or 250 or 300, whatever it may be. Um, I think there's maybe it's a, it's just a guy thing for lack of a, a yeah. better term that, that they don't want to, you know, they don't want to step up and, and own that. But I think if, you know, I think there are more guys out there who think they need to look a certain way and just, you know, either won't embrace it or won't say anything about it. Yeah. I mean, um, I think we, we come from a society where it's okay as a female to say that we have, um, you know, not, I don't want to say problems, but it's okay to say, like, I feel bad about myself, but I don't really think we live in a society that kind of makes it okay for a, for a guy to express, Hey, I don't feel good about myself or, you know, um, I'm hurting inside as it relates to my self-esteem. It's kind of one of those things that we've been brought up to believe it's like, you know, oh, we'll just man up, you know, like right. guys don't have problems like that. Um, and I hope that, and I do believe that like times are changing. I think, especially with social media, honestly, I know a lot of people point out the negatives, um, as it relates to self-esteem and kind of what we think of ourselves in terms of social media. But I think social media has opened up doors, you know, before when we would see pictures of elite runners, you know, maybe it's somebody on the cover of a magazine, you know, like let's take for instance, Shalane on the cover of runner's world. Like she is in, in the thick of training right now for a race that she is aiming to win. So of course her body is going to be at, um, what I would consider an abnormally low, um, body fat percentage. You know, she is in a peak moment of time. That is not necessarily what she looks like all the time. And so when you have elites that have social media accounts that are authentic and post, you know, photos or captions of what it's like during training that, you know, they don't always look like this, you know, maybe there are periods of time that they are 10, 15 pounds lighter, but it's not, um, what they are year round and their fitness level also is the same. Um, you know, I think I actually, it was on your podcast where Desi was saying how she's a marathoner and, and how, if, um, you know, she doesn't perform the best during summer races, well, oh, well, um, 
you don't, you wouldn't have gotten that 10 years ago because you only had magazines to look at. And so you would think that that's what an elite was at year round, you know? Right. So I think social media has kind of opened up the kind of, I guess, lifted the curtain um, to show you that elites are just like us, you know, like they have ups and downs as well. Um, and I enjoy that. It makes me more comfortable in my own skin when, when I see an elite post a picture where I'm like, Oh, Hey, like my stomach looks like that, you know? Yeah. And I think the more that elites and better athletes can be open about not just their triumphs, but also their struggles, the more middle and back of the Packers and newcomers are going to realize that they're dealing with the same things, the same sort of ups, the same sort of downs. I think Meb said it on one of my last podcasts. He's like, the only difference is the clock. And if you really think about it, um, you know, that's, that's absolutely true. And certainly there's differences in how people are going to train for, for various events. But at the end of the day, um, there's, you know, there's a lot more going on that is, you know, that is relatable than, there's not. And I think the more that, you know, folks like us who have a platform and have an audience and are speaking to different types of runners can share that same message, the better off this greater running community as a whole is going to be. Yeah. I think there absolutely are differences between elites and and someone like myself. But at the same time, like I've had the opportunity um, to hang out with quite a few elites over the years. Um, And like, they really are just like us, you know what I mean? And so I think that there are a lot more things that are in common than both of us probably realize the average runner. And then those also at the top of their game. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your own running. You've run 34 marathons, I believe. You had mentioned earlier how you went from 420 down to a 311 and sort of what was going on maybe during that time. Talk to me a little bit about how your relationship with running and maybe the marathon specifically has evolved over the years. Yeah, I think when I... When I first started out, my first marathon was not something I was doing because I liked running. I I didn't um I wouldn't I would say I I loved running after the first marathon was over. That's kind of when I fell in love. Um but I think running is like this crazy thing that you know, as soon as you do something and you finish it and you've kind of gotten the pain out of your mind, um, instantly your mind is like, okay, well, how could I do that better? Like, what could I have changed that would get me to that finish line faster? Um, and I kind of just started to crave that. So, um, it wasn't a super fast progression. I'm, I'm trying to think when I ran, I think, uh, my 311 was probably in 2012 and my first marathon was in 2003. So it wasn't like it happened overnight that I, um, dropped my times that quickly, but, um, it just happens kind of little by little. I think where I kind of went astray, I guess, um, is that I thought that the time on the clock, the lower, you know, the faster the time was that it was kind of like a direct correlation to how happy I would be. And so it kind of became this thing that it was like, nothing was ever enough. Like, you know, okay, I, I just ran, um, I'll never forget this. I ran a 10 mile race in an hour and six minutes. And 
that are a 10. Yeah. Did I say 10 mile? <laughs> yeah. She said 10 words. miles. I ran a 10 miler in an hour and six minutes and I finished and it clicked with me that I had ran my first 10 K in an hour and six minutes. And it was like this special moment that it was like, wow, this is so crazy. Like, look at how far I've come. But it wasn't an hour later that it was like, well, gosh, like, why could I have not run a, a 105? And a couple weeks later, I ran another 10 miler fully expecting to run faster than the 106 because the 106 just wasn't wasn't enough. And I ran a 107 and I, I, I cried that day. Like I felt like such a failure, was so embarrassed and mortified that you know, how could I run even slower? You know, like I had, I not gained any fitness in those couple of weeks. And I, I think that's where I went wrong, that it was like, you know, it stopped, I, I stopped feeling the joy. It was, it was so much time. To, my self-esteem was just way too tied up in the clock, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, I, and I don't want to say it was an easy path out of that because it most definitely wasn't an easy path out of that. Like I am a highly competitive person. Um, so I just kind of have had to channel my competitive tendencies to other things and really focus on the fact that like, I, I do want to get the best out of myself, but I also don't want to fall down into that hole again, where I think that the only way that I have any sort of value is, is based on how fast I run. So yeah, so I'm much slower now <laughs> than I was, but, um, it, it doesn't bother me at all. You know, like I, I still feel, um, the, the joy, uh, that comes with running marathons, regardless of the time on the clock. And, and that's not to say that I don't train hard and that I, I wouldn't like to get faster or that I'm not training to try to, to get some of that, that speed back. Um, I am, but I'm doing that because I like the process of getting faster, not because I need a certain time on the clock. Um, if that kind of makes any sense. So, um, it allows me to feel joy. Like when I show up to the start line of a marathon and especially, I mean, you know, this, the, the marathon is a beast. So you can do everything perfectly in training and you can show up that day and nothing can go right. Um, but if you have allowed yourself to, to tie your happiness to everything going right, um, you can feel a lot of sadness at the finish line of a marathon. And, and I don't have that sadness anymore. Like it doesn't matter if the clock says three, something, something, or four, something, something, it still is a marathon finish to me. So it feels like a victory. I don't know. Maybe that's part of getting older or, um, it's maturing. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I do. I, it, and there's so much, it's less stress. Like I just see so many people stressing out before a race and, you know, I do stress out too, but at the same time, like whatever is going to happen on that day is going to happen on that day. And, and worrying about it and stressing about it is, is absolutely not going to change the outcome. You know, mm -hmm. what goals do you still have? ahead of you in terms of running? I'd love to qualify for Boston again, um, which I think is totally feasible. If I'm honest, I, I ran um, New York City Marathon this past fall and had fully intended and kind of um, expected to qualify for Boston. But 
Um, the day did not go as planned, which I was fine with, but so I would love to, to run a sub. I think my time actually might be a three forty now, three thirty-five. Um, but I'd love to go sub three thirty again in the marathon. Uh, I'd really love to get focused on the 5k for a little bit. I kind of get sucked into marathons. I'm like, I'm not going to do a marathon. And then I just sign up for another one. So I would love to focus on the 5k for a little bit and see what I could do. And then see if that could maybe translate a couple years from now, um, into a faster marathon time. But yeah, I guess, I don't know. My goal is to just continue to, to allow the marathon to teach me lessons about life and, and lessons about myself. So, um, I'd say most of my goals are, are not tied to, uh, to a time. Cool. Continuing on this theme and tying in, I guess, social media and some of the stuff that we talked about earlier. You recently joined Strava, I think within the last year, I started following you and checking out your workouts and you post your training um, as openly as you're posting stuff on Instagram. Uh, But that's a relatively new platform for you, even though it's been around for a while. Was it hard to share that aspect of your journey or did you have hesitations about, you know, sharing your sharing your training and kind of being vulnerable in that way? Yeah, I think my first, the reason I didn't join Strava when everybody originally joined Strava is I, I definitely had like the privacy concerns mm-hmm. where it was like, well, I, I don't want people knowing where I run every day. Um, so that was my hesitation at first. And then I, I think when I first started out, um, doing this whole blogging and social media thing, I, I was really sensitive to criticism. And so if I had allowed people to see what I was doing and someone had said, oh, well, that was a, you know, stupid workout. Like, you know, why would she run so many miles that week? Or, you know, oh, she didn't run very much this week. I wouldn't have necessarily been able to handle that criticism. Whereas now um, I've, I've learned to, to take criticism with a, you know, grain of salt. I, I quickly analyze it, um, to see if it's constructive or, um, you know, if if it's correct or somebody has my best interests at heart. And if, if it's none of those things that I can move on from it. So now, I mean, now it's easy and, and I, I don't know if this happens to you, but I, I sometimes forget how many people are looking at things. So, you know, I'll share a story on Instagram and, and not fully think that like, oh my gosh, 10,000 people just looked at that stupid picture. Like, why did I post that? You know? And so I think it's kind of the same way with Strava now. Like I post it, but I don't really think too much about other people looking at it. And I don't know if they want to critique me or dive in and it doesn't really, doesn't really bother me anymore. Do you find Strava to be motivating for your own training in any way? I do. Yeah. I like seeing what people are running and I like seeing it in the number sense. Um, I don't so much enjoy looking through someone's caption on Instagram and like deciphering what the workout was or necessarily hearing like the whole story of the workout. I like, um, just kind of like the nuts and bolts that Strava provides like, Oh, okay. This person ran these paces, but look at that elevation or, um, I kind of like that, you know? And also, um, it, I feel like it's more accountable maybe than people posting 
um, on Instagram, which maybe is why I find it more motivating. You know, when you look at paces people post on Instagram, it's easy to compare. Um, oh, they, you know, they ran whatever pace it may have been, but, you know, oftentimes they're leaving out stops or they're, they're not telling you that there is, you know, three feet of elevation on that run. So, um, I find looking through people's training on Strava to be much more motivating because it really is just kind of like an, an honest open training journal, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it makes a ton of sense. Um, and continuing along that theme of, of openness and honesty, when you're posting to whatever platform, whether it's Strava or Instagram or Twitter or um, Facebook, which I, I know you're somewhat active on as well, maybe not as much as the others, like how do you, like what discretion do you use when you're sharing something? Do you have sort of a, you know, sort of a criteria of like when you're going to put something up for, for everyone to see, like what message you want to get across or is there a, you know, is there like a, deliberateness to um everything that you're putting up and out into the world there is a deliberateness um but it's also a natural deliberateness if if that makes any sense there was a period of time where i used scheduling systems and would write out things ahead of time and you know everything kind of like automate the day mm -hmm. and that's not what people want. Like if they, if they want something automated, they're following runner's world or, you know, they're following one of these larger accounts like active.com or something. Like if they're following an individual, they want that individual, like they want that person. And so, you know, while things may be deliberate in thinking, um, Hey, like I get more impressions on Monday. So if I have something meaningful to say, I'm going to post that meaningful thing on Monday, just because I know, um, the Instagram algorithm is not going to show it to as many people on say a Friday. It's deliberate in that sense. Um, but it's not, it's not a scheduled out thing. So when I'm on Twitter and I'm kind of just like, posting random quotes or, you know, kind of spilling my guts or getting on a soapbox about something that is actually what I feel in the moment. And so even with the quotes, like it's not, I don't have pre thought up quotes ahead of time. It's whatever my mood is. Um, and you know, maybe that's some of my success is that it's not all scheduled out and planned and, um, kind of deliberate in that sense, but I, but I am very aware of the algorithms and how those things work. And, um, yeah, that stuff, <laughs> hope that answers it. <laughs> no, it does. Um, what advice would you give other runners? And I'm thinking specifically of, of professional runners who are trying to build maybe a following, um, and get people excited to support them and follow their careers. What advice would you give them in terms of how just very generally like how they approach social media and connecting with fans and potential fans this is you've actually this is my next pivot my next pivot when i am i'm done with a mile post which who knows maybe sooner than later um i would love to work with elite athletes or with brands um and the people that they sponsor to help those athletes learn how to do a better job at social media and kind of leverage that both for the brands and then also the individual. Um, I think if I was giving out a tiny little a bit like a nugget that someone could take away, it just would be to be more... Um, I don't want to say more authentic because authentic is such an overused word, but 
I think a lot of times elites think that they have to be kind of like this person that's like preaching knowledge and like giving advice. And I don't think you have to be that way. Like, I think you can just be yourself, you know, like people are following you. Yes. Because they want to see your training. Yes. Um, you know, maybe they find you inspiring, but they are more than likely following you because they, whatever it is about you as a person, they are drawn to. Um, so they, I, I would say that Alexi does a really good job at this kind of just sharing herself. So people can see who the real, the real person is. Um, I think there are a lot of curated feeds in Instagram. And I, I think if, if an athlete um, wanted to grow um, or do a better job at promoting themselves, I would say to stay away from that kind of curated um, look. And then also, but just like what they're saying and more so go for showing who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I think it, to relate it to the people that are are listening to your podcast now, like the people that you've had on thus far, um, they were just like authentic, like they're talking about their love of coffee or, you know, Meb's just just sharing his everyday details. Like that's what people want. Um, share that, you know. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great advice. It seems so simple, right? On the surface and obvious, but I think it's, you know, I think it's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. And I guess on, you know, along those lines, is it hard for you to share anything if you're, you know, especially if you're sharing stuff about, you know, your, your kids or your family, or you're posting a picture about them or how, you know, that part of your life and how it integrates with running? Like, is that a hard thing for you to you know, to, to share, I mean, not that you're going into like super, um, you know, super dialed in details or anything like that, but when you're, you're kind of sharing that part of your life that isn't necessarily just running and might be a little bit more personal, like where do you draw the line, I guess, when it comes to that sort of stuff? Yeah. Well, with my kids, um, you'll see if someone were to look through my photos, there's a lot more photos of my, my daughter and then my youngest son and not as many photos of my middle child. He has expressed to me that he does not want to be on the internet. And so when I post photos of him, they're always photos that I've asked for permission, if that's okay. I have very strong feelings on parents oversharing their kids on the internet. So I attempt to not do that with my children, but I also want to share that they are a huge part of my life. Um, and so, yeah, so I think it's a balance. Like I, I try not to, um, obviously post photos of their friends or, um, tag locations of where they are just for like safety reasons. But, but yeah, it is hard. I mean, there was a period of time where my husband and I were separated and I moved out of the house and was going through a very rough time. And, and I wanted to share that I was, um, having a very rough time in life, but at the same time, like, wasn't just ready to like spill my personal business to the internet. So I kind of just asked myself, like in every single thing that you post, are you ready for quite literally the world to see this? Like you may not think that the world's seeing it, but everything stays on the internet for forever. So 
um, you know, five years down the road, are you, are you going to be upset that you posted this? Um, there's a lot of things that I wrote and said on my blog in the earlier years that I am mortified that I wrote or said or embarrassed that I overshared in that way. And so I definitely think before I post now. Um, and I still make mistakes. I mean, sometimes on Twitter, I'll, I'll go off on, you know, a small rant and, and feel crappy about it later and go back and delete it and hope that not that many people saw it. But um, I think it's important for anyone, whether you have a large following or not, to really analyze what you're sharing. These days, I'm very cognizant of what I'm posting because my daughter is 11 and a lot of her friends are on Instagram. And so I, I can see their little Instagram accounts creeping in yeah. my Instagram stories. And so it's like, is this something that I'm posting that I'm going to be proud that my 11 year old daughter's friends saw? Or is this something I'm going to be embarrassed of? Um, and that's why like on my account, um, you'll see a lot of Instagram influencers or a lot of kind of the fitness accounts are constantly posting half naked photos. And, you know, that's a really great way to, to up your followers and get new people to follow you. But like, A, those aren't the type of people that I want following me. And B, like, is that something that I'm going to be proud that my daughter is going to see, you know? Right. So I think I, I do the, the kind of kid test before I post anything of like, Hey, is this something I'm going to be proud if my kids stumble upon later on? Um, and that kind of just helps me, helps me find a balance. I think that's great advice. Last thing I want to touch on. You're a fan of the sport of running the competitive side of things, the elites yes. you've hung around quite a few of them. Um, I see your excitement online around various races. What's exciting you right now about competitive running? Uh, Boston. <laughs> um, I love that women are just having a, a moment right now in time um, where there are just so many fast Americans. Um, there's always fast women, but I think especially as, as an American, it gets me so excited that like, I'm going to go this year and spectate Boston and, and I'm going to see so many, or I hope to see so many um, American women in the top 10. So um, I think that's what's really getting me excited. Um, and also, I I'm excited more elite athletes are choosing to embrace social media and get on and kind of um, mix in with those of us who um, are just part of this sport because we love it or um, because we're just uh, like, I don't want to say hobby joggers, but you know, hobby joggers. <laughs> Dorothy, thank you so much for your time. This was a super fun conversation. Before we thank split, you. before we split, where can my listeners connect with you online? I am pretty much mile posts on everything. M I L E P O S T S. Um, that's on Instagram and Facebook, um, or you can Google. I run this body, or I have a runner's body. I'm pretty much the only 35 year old Dorothy Beal online. So if you Google Dorothy Beal, my stuff pops up. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you in Boston and keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to support the show, it only takes a few seconds to do so. Head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever player you used to listen in today and leave a rating and a review. Simple as that. 
It helps other listeners find the show, which in turn grows the audience, which helps me to continue bringing on great guests for you to learn from and be inspired by on a near weekly basis. If you'd like to support my work directly, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com slash themorningshakeout. Many thanks to all of you who have already made a monthly donation. It helps me to continue producing not only this show, but also my weekly newsletter of the same name, which comes out every Tuesday morning. And for those of you who had no clue that I even had a weekly newsletter, get on it. You can subscribe at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you will receive a weekly email from me. It comes out on Tuesday mornings. I write about running and a whole slew of other interesting topics, and I really think you'll enjoy it. That's all I got. So until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and thank you for listening to my podcast.